This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 10 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I have another great guest with me here today. He is an iOS freelancer and the author of Kanlu.com, which is an excellent blog about Swift development. It's Sarush Kanlu. Welcome to the show, Sarush. Hey, John. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. That's almost a uh, kind of one of these uh, tongue twisters. Welcome to the show, Sarush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, we, we just met recently. We did. Yeah, we, we've been in touch a little bit online, you know, giving each other some feedback on each other's blog posts and stuff like that. Uh, but we just met in Italy, in, uh, in Verona. Yeah, for, uh, for PragmaConf. That, that was a nice conference. Yeah, it was really good. I especially love what you did during your talk, uh, where <laughs> you had a great talk about building your own abstractions and that we all deserve nice things. And what you did is that you actually got the conference organizers to serve Prosecco <laughs> during your talk. <laughs> Well, so the first talk that day was at 9 a.m. And I was scheduled to go on at 6.05. And I was like, after, you know, nine hours of talks, people are going to be pretty tired. Uh, we got to do something to spice this up. And um, I was like, do you think, I talked to class, I was like, do you think we could like maybe start the drinks early? Like instead of last coffee break, we do a drinks break. And he's like, oh, I don't know. We'll see what we can do. And then he ended up getting like, I don't know, 20 bottles of Prosecco from the hotel. And just like while I was talking, like walking around, passing them out. And it worked out great, I thought. Yeah, it was awesome. It was not a distraction at all. It was just like, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone's going to remember that talk. I mean, it was a great talk also, but just this experience of <laughs> it was definitely unique. Yeah, I hope people I hope people enjoyed it. That's all you can really ask for. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you run a really awesome blog over at kanlu.com. Thank you. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a little bit similar to the blog that I do. You po tend to post guest weekly also. I shoot for weekly, but you know some weeks are tougher than others. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Like, how did you get started with the website, and what kind of keeps you going and and keep writing blog posts? Yeah. Uh, what got me started? Um, to be totally honest, like. The thing that got me started was that all these people I looked up to so much all had blogs. You know, your 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 John Gruber's and your Marco Arments and stuff, and uh, and they all had blogs and, and they all seemed so cool. <laughs> uh, and this was like back in I was you know eighteen at the time. It was like two thousand five. I got my first Mac and I was like, oh my god, these people are so awesome. And I was like, oh, I would love to join the indie Mac community because there was no iOS at that time. And, um, and so I, I knew I wanted to have a blog. I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't really know what I wanted to write about, which turns out knowing what you want to write about is actually the important part, not wanting a blog. So I started a blog and didn't really have much to write about. And I would write every once in a while about various things. I didn't really want to do Apple punditry. I have one post in my archives that's about Apple Maps. I was just like, this is not for me. This is not my kind of thing. Not Kanlu approved. Well, I mean, I you know, I wrote it, but I I just like wrote it and then I posted. It. I was like, this is I, I'm not the best person to be talking about this. I don't even care that much about this. Why am I writing this? Right. And um, so what ended up sticking was like I would like find a hole in the iOS blogosphere in general. Uh, so, so the blog started back in 2012, so it's been a little over five years. Wow, that's a, that's a long time. Yeah, it's not as long as some blogs, but I'm, I'm happy with it. 
Um, and then I would basically find a hole in the iOS blogosphere where I would be like, okay, well, view controller containment, like how does this work? And I would like do a bunch of Googling and, and, and go to a bunch of forums and stuff and just try to find the information I needed. And it just isn't there. And so I was like, well, somebody's got to write this post. And so I would research it and, um, and I would basically research it, find out all the little ins and outs, write a post basically answering all the questions that I had about view controller containment um, before I sort of set out on this journey. And um, from that, like, comes a blog post. And then that blog post then becomes the reference that I go back to whenever I have a question about, do I need to call, you know, uh, did move to parent view controller or will move to parent view controller? Because one of them is necessary, but one of them is unnecessary. Like, all that stuff, I get to, like, go back to this and look. And I actually use this blog post, uh, which we'll throw in the show notes. Um, I usually go back to this blog post, like, anytime I'm writing a container view controller, basically. Awesome. Um, yeah. And so it was, like, stuff like that. And that was... That I, I felt like really good about writing because I was like, I'm actually like expanding the uh, sort of the, the library of all the blog posts that we have to refer to. Yeah. I was talking a little bit about it uh, with uh, Paul Hudson last on the last episode as well that, you know, all these blogs that we have, you know, sometimes people ask me like, why did you get started with your blog? I mean, there are so many blogs out there already. And it's not like we can have too many. Well, maybe we could have if literally everyone was writing, <laughs> there was there would be no time to read. Uh, but it's one of these things where the more people share about what they learn and what you what you have there as an example is, is perfect, I think, where you essentially needed to learn something. You went out and you did all the research and you you know explored it and you tried things out. And then what you basically learned from, from all of those things, you can just share. So the next time someone has the same question or and that someone might be you in the future. Right, exactly. Uh, can just go back to it, right? And I think that's that's like a great reason. And I think it's awesome that that there are so many people who, who share what they learn. And I try to do that as much as I can as well. Yeah. Um, I really particularly liked your, your last post was a great example of this, where you're talking about using tokens like for cancellation. It's a pattern that's in a lot of libraries. Um, it's not it's not something that's unheard of, but I've I've never seen a blog post about it. And I try to read almost everything that I can by everybody that I like know of. And nobody's written about that yet. And it's like we definitely don't have too many blogs if there are topics that just haven't been covered yet. Yeah, exactly. And you know, even if it's something that, you know, I wrote about futures and promises, for example, I've I've written about a lot of things which a lot of other people have written about as well, and there's a lot of documentation about it, but you can always, you know, we can always find kind of a unique angle, and it's always valuable, I think, to hear uh, other people's opinion, even though the topic has been covered, because you always find something new, right? That's right. So yeah, it's good stuff all around. Yeah. All right. So uh, what do you say? Should we start diving into our questions and topics that we've gotten from the audience? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Let's get started. So as you know, uh, this show is all about answering questions and talking about topics that were submitted by you, the audience. And it's really what keeps the show going. And it feels like this is the thing that people really like about the show, which I'm very happy about because that was kind of what I thought when I was uh, going to get started with it. So if you want to ask a question for a future episode, you can do so by going to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast or you can just tweet it to at SwiftBySundell on Twitter. So to kick things off for this episode, uh, we're going to start with a question from Paco Cardinal. 
And he asks, what is, in your opinion, the best new development feature in iOS 11? Best feature in, best new dev feature in iOS 11. That's an interesting one. As far as like actual new APIs and stuff, some of the stuff was cool, but not really that useful or practical for me. The big one for me is not actually iOS 11, but Xcode. Uh, and I know that a lot of people have had some trouble with Xcode, a couple bugs here and there, and I've had my share as well uh, with this new build. Um, but having like, ha- basically being able to refactor is just incredible. Yeah. Uh, having, um, you know, what is the control command E, uh, rename all in scope or whatever, uh, or edit all in scope. That feature is just like way faster now and it looks better and like it shows you what you're doing. The refactoring is insane. Um, and they just added, if you have a fatal error, uh, it will show on the line that it happened, it'll show like an inline error instead of showing it in the console. And I think that's just like stuff like that is um, so nice. I don't know. It's just, it, it's a real relief from the stuff, some of the stuff we've come from. Um, I've actually been working on an Android app for a client and Android Studio has its flaws as well. But there are these things that it does that like, I'm like, oh, I kind of wish that uh, that our ecosystem did this, that our, that our tools did this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tools of like, it'll validate, um, you know, basically configuration files. It'll validate them in line. And if there's a problem, like two different, uh, you know, keys in that validation file don't match up, it will like tell you with a sort of a compile time error. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's, uh, I totally agree. It's like when you look at, you know, IntelliJ and, and you know, which Android Studio is based on, uh, it's, you know, all the features that it has. And a lot of it is in app code as well, of course, which, you know, also is made by my by JetBrains. Uh, but all the refactoring features. And, you know, when I was doing, I was doing some backend development when I was working at Spotify and it was in Java. And the IDE would tell me, you know, I was creating a property of a certain type and it would suggest a name for the property that would be like a perfect match. And I would be like, whoa, this is this is crazy. How does it know? I I guess it just like if you have a view, it would just suggest that it would be called view, for example, right? Because oh, interesting. yeah, so it's it's very common. Like let's say you have a data loader, you know, you often call that property data loader. Um, so it was just really interesting. It would offer up these suggestions, and it it would just feel. I guess that's why they call it IntelliJ, but <laughs> it would just feel a lot smarter. And where you know Xcode is, it has a lot of great features, and and you know I I think sometimes we can give Xcode a little bit of a hard time. <laughs> but um, one thing where this release has improved a lot and where I still think there are ways to go is just in the kind of smartness and the predictability and the, you know, offering up these suggestions as you go. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like, I think um, Xcode, while it does have its holes, it also, like, there are things that Xcode does that I wish Android Studio did. Um, and so it's like, it's not, you know, it's not all bad. It's not all doom and gloom. But uh, I just kind of wish they all had all the features. <laughs> yeah, um, of course. <laughs> because it makes you so much more productive. Right, exactly. Uh, I've also heard good things about VS Code, although I haven't touched it. I hear a lot of people talking about how great it is, especially for JavaScript. Yeah. Um, but there's some good IDs out there. I mean, maybe the IDD, IDE world is getting a little bit better. Yeah, and I mean, it's great also that we have these alternate IDs now for, for Apple's platforms, because I think that, you know, it's always like that. When you have a little bit of competition, it kind of creates more innovation and it just drives things forward. While if you only have Xcode, that's the only solution, it can tend to get a little bit stale uh, right. in, the, in the development. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Xcode 9, I think, uh, you know, yeah, there were a lot of issues in the earlier releases, but I think it's getting a lot better. And 
there's a lot of great new stuff in there, like the refactoring features and the new editor and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. And the bones are good. Like there may be bugs, but the bones are very solid. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of new uh, iOS 11 SDK features, uh, there's of course, you know, the cool new stuff like ARKit, CoreML, like the new vision stuff. Um, I think that's like super exciting. And especially the ARKit, I think that's, uh, really cool. I played around a little bit with it, but it's one of these things where it's like very early days and it's kind of clear that the current state of VR is definitely not like the ultimate expression of it. But I think it's super interesting to dive into and just like, you know, explore like what does it mean to build a UI in AR, for example, right? It's like completely different from just building a traditional 2D UI. Right, right. Where you want to kind of use the things of the camera. Like you have to place the things on the camera, so you want to put them in the right place. Yeah, you place it in your scene, so you you're more creating like a three dimensional space, and you want to you know use the world around you and anchor things to planes. So there's definitely like you can create more of these. Like, have you seen this movie Minority Report? Mm-hmm, sure. <laughs> you know, like you know, this is classic futuristic UI scene, right? Where, That's right. Yeah, it's it's kind of a little bit like that. I mean, obviously we're still far from that, but. I feel like this is where we're heading, and that's super exciting, I think. Yeah. I think we're going to get to use AR Kit in one of our apps, which will be really awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like fun. Pretty excited about that. All right. And actually, another really awesome feature, I think, of the new SDK is uh, how Apple handles the iPhone 10. So this new Safe Area Insets API. Uh, for me, uh, it's been so easy, actually. I mean, obviously, in some places... I had to do a lot of custom stuff, but usually it's been quite easy to actually adopt UIs for iPhone X uh, because you just have this like very nice Safe Area Instance API. You can just put your uh, views anchored to all those things. It works with all layouts, and I think that's that's like it's a really well designed way of handling this new device. I think. Yeah, for sure. And uh, historically, automatically adjust scroll view insets and all that stuff has been so flaky. Oh, yeah. And it's like, well, what does it do in this case? What does it do in that case? And it's like, well, if the scroll view is the first sub view, then it will adjust it. But only if the origin is at zero, zero. And like, you <laughs> yeah. never know when it's going to actually do the thing that you want it to do. And it sounds like the safe area inset is like going to relieve a lot of that stress. Yeah, for me, it feels like the next version of that API, of that content instance API. Like, it's it just way nicer. And I also feel like it just fits the mental model that at least I have when it comes to putting things in a UI. Like, I'm not thinking so much about insets and stuff like that. I'm more thinking about, like, where's the area where I can put things? Like, I usually, in the, in the past, I actually usually created my own, like, content area API that would use the content insets and things like that to actually give me a rectangle. But now I don't have to anymore because safe area insets. Yeah, there you go. And uh, if we can if we can talk about like iOS 11, like features that we want that, or that we're excited about that maybe we're not going to get to use, but somebody else will get to use. Yeah. They've changed HomeKit so that you no longer need a hardware authentication chip so that your encryption can be done in software rather than in hardware. Right. And that's huge because it means I have automatic light switches in our house and they will be able to get on HomeKit via a software update, which is going to be super, super awesome. Um, it hasn't happened yet, which I'm kind of frustrated by. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, they had all summer, you know, what are they, what are they doing? Yeah. Over there? What are they doing over there? But it'll come soon. And I think that's going to be like, that's going to actually like change a lot of how I do stuff. I'm going to be able to say, Hey Siri, like, Oh, I'm sorry. Hey Dingus, <laughs> do this thing. Um, 
Hoy Telephone do this thing. So that'll be really, really nice. So I'm actually really looking forward to that, even if I won't be the one taking advantage of that API. Yeah, that's a super exciting feature. Yeah. All right, so let's now move ahead to the next question. And this one comes from someone who calls himself Swifty on, on Twitter. And uh, this person asks, what are your experiences with Reactive Swift, Reactive Cocoa, and FRP? Uh, is it sensible to include these just to use MVVM? So I thought we could start by just um, recapping a little bit about MVVM. So for those of you who haven't used that before, it's uh, it's an architectural pattern, uh, just like MVC, uh, but instead of having model view controller, you have model view view model. And the idea originally comes from Microsoft. I think it was used in Windows Forms, if I'm not remembering incorrectly. Yeah, I think it's, uh, this is something that we don't understand super well in our industry, but I think it's basically a view controller, but for Microsoft platforms is my understanding. Pretty much. I mean, it fills the same role, right? Where right. your view controller will control your views and it will kind of bind the data to your views and it will handle user input and things like that. And that's kind of the role of the view model in, uh, in MVVM. So in bringing that to Swift, there's, of course, a lot of different ways you could implement it because you're not necessarily replacing view controllers with view models here because that would mean re-architecting the entire view controller system, which we rely on a lot on iOS. So what do you say, Sarush? Have you, um, have you used MVVM in any way before? So this, I feel like this question is basically three different questions. First is, what do you think about the reactive paradigm? What do you think about MVVM? And lastly, uh, the author mentions in a legacy project. So what do you think about kind of bringing this to projects that don't have it already? Right. Um, to take your first part, basically, what, about, what do I think about MVVM? Um, I have a blog post that I wrote in 2015 um, that caused a lot of consternation. Uh, and it's called MVVM is not very good. Um, and it was originally titled MVVM is, is terrible. <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, the more I thought about it, I wrote the post and I was like, well, MVVM isn't terrible. It's just not very good. Um, like, it's not really solving the problems that it's setting out to solve. And so, essentially, like, basically, what am I getting at here? The main problem that I have with MVVM is that the name is so poor that it doesn't actually help you break down the responsibilities very well. And you can see this when you look at different blog posts about the pattern. So, some people will say, oh, MVVM is for networking. Some people will say, oh, MVVM is actually for form validation. Um, some people will say MVVM is for like translating model data and preparing it for presentation on the view. Um, and like all these are very different responsibilities and they have uh, different, they should have different names. Like the first one probably should be called like an API client. The second one could be called a validator. The third one could be called a presenter. And if you, if you just use the word view model, you don't really have a very clear separation because the name is already very abstract. And so you end up just cramming a ton of responsibilities into one object where you end up with something that is basically just your view controller minus the parts that touch UI kit. And that's like, that's like something. You did something there, but it just wasn't as good as something else that you could have done. I guess for me, uh, I've used view models quite a lot in the past, but I've kept them very, very thin. And I've... Basically, one of the um, one of the use cases you mentioned there, just making it responsible for providing view specific data to a view controller. So, um, and my kind of reasoning behind that is that 
I found that using a view model as kind of the middleman between the core data model and the view controller or the view makes both the view layer and the model layer a lot easier to change. And for example, when I've been working in some really large projects, that has been super valuable because you could make a change in the model and you would only have to update uh, small places instead of having to go through entire view controllers and changing lots of binding code and lots of you know, a code that we're making assumptions about the model. Right. And instead you would have like this interface basically against the model for your view controller. But it's not necessary really to use a view model for that, but it's just a tool I feel that helps you, you know, move in that direction. Yeah, I think the, the when the view model can be the most powerful is when it essentially acts as a facade yeah. um, to a bunch of other objects that do a bunch of work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and th that pattern is particularly useful. And it's like, basically, the view model itself doesn't do anything, but it just acts as a message router to say, well, you want to know about whether this, what color this button should be, you're going to get forwarded over to the presenter. You want to like kick off this network request, you're going to get pushed over to this API client. And you want more data, you're going to get pushed off to your, your database object or whatever. And having that facade be there, I think, can be very valuable. Um, and I think that's like the best form of MVVM. So to uh, loop back to the initial part there of the question about uh, functional reactive programming or Rx or reactive Cocoa, um, I hear a lot of people actually who combine view models with, with Rx kind of, you know, see it as part of the same concept. And uh, for me, it's like, you could totally use a view model to like group all your observables as they're called if you're using uh, FRP. Uh, but I don't necessarily see them as that you need FRP in order to achieve MVVM if that's the pattern you're looking to to implement. Uh, like I just said, like a view model can be extremely simple, extremely thin. It doesn't really need all the power of FRP to be valuable, in my opinion. Uh, but of course, if you already are using FRP, then the view model can be a great way to put all that stuff. Right. I think that that's basically right. I agree with that. I think a lot of people... I think if you are going to use FRP, I think it does make sense to basically use it MVVM as a facade or as something to kind of wrangle all your notifications, turn them into signals, and bind them to your UI. I think that does make a lot of sense. But I think there is a bit of a gap um, between sort of what people want FRP to be and what it's like in practice and what it's like to basically onboard a new person into it. Um, and to to take someone from like, oh, what is the signal to, oh, everything should be a signal. Yeah. And I think that that can be really tough. So, uh, you know, you've written about promises before. Um, I think promises are really great. Promises, one way to describe them is it's like a signal that only fires once. Yeah. Um, but when you add that like, oh, these things can fire multiple times, you end up with a lot of extra complexity. And so like, I think while promise, promises themselves which I think are pretty simple compared to signals already have a huge gap of like, how do I get someone from who's never heard of a promise before and only uses completion blocks for like, Oh, this thing happened. Um, how do I get them to like, Oh, now I can use promises in a very facile way and move through and modify promise code to represent like what it is they want to represent. Right. That itself is really tough. I've, I've, I've worked with a couple of developers, introduced them to the concept, and it takes like, like to say that it takes months is not an understatement. Like it takes a serious amount of time 
and the like you know for you and i like we've written the promise libraries we know what we want them to do so it's a little bit easier because we know how they work under the hood for someone who doesn't know how they work under the hood they're really really tough to say okay well this object represents something that doesn't exist yet but will exist and the way that i access what it will represent in the future is using this function that i pass another function to and it's like it gets really weird and complicated um and even taking you know a step even back before promises you want to just look at optionals where it's like oh this value represents a value that is there or is not there and we don't know which even that causes people problems so then you sort of fast forward two generations from that and you end up with something where the compiler doesn't help you when you write it. The um, names of the functions aren't very friendly. So it's like, well, combine latest. What does that mean? Like, what, what latest thing am I combining? Um, flat map. What am I flat mapping here? What's happening? And so you end up with names that are confusing. You end up with a compiler doesn't help you. You end up with just like all these little issues that build to making it really tough to use in practice and getting people, like if you're sold on the concept, you'll make it work, but getting people to, from where they're not sold to where they are sold is really tough with FRP. Frankly, I mean, you know, the people I talk to, they hate it. Like the people that love it, love it. And the people that are like forced to use it, like it's the bane of their existence. Yeah, it's definitely a polarizing subject. And uh, I think there's a lot to kind of what you said there, where I feel like sometimes, FRP is being taken a little bit too far maybe, or it's being used in a way that is like very advanced and it might be elegant if you are an FRP expert, but to someone who is a complete beginner, it looks just like black magic. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, I definitely think like with anything, uh, you know, putting things in different layers and organizing them and giving them succinct names uh, can really help and can regardless of what you choose. So I guess for me, uh, like, answering kind of this question, I would say don't necess- you don't necessarily need to include uh, FRP library in order to use MVVM. I would actually suggest start with just, if you want to try out MVVM and see if it's something that you like and if it's for you, I would suggest just trying MVVM first. Like I wouldn't suggest mixing a whole bunch of concepts because usually that's what leads to these situations where, you know, uh, there are so many advanced things at play and it's very very hard to reason about yeah i agree with that um mvvm can be right in your project frp can be right in your project they could both be right in your project but you i don't think adding them both at the same time is is necessarily the best thing to do all right awesome so let's move uh, move on now to the next topic and this one comes from Kristaps greenbergs And uh, this person is asking, any thoughts about massive extensions which have become quite big because you added a lot of extended functions and custom operators? So basically, um, the problem of having too much code in one extension or many extensions, which can happen definitely because in Swift, it's become a kind of common practice to split up code in different extensions and, you know, extending types, maybe sometimes rather than adding new types. So in your talk, for example, Sarush, this you deserve nice things. Um, you talked a lot about extensions and you know creating your own convenience APIs on top of the standard library. Right. So what is your take on this? Like, w- how do you usually deal with your extensions in order to not make them too complex? 
So I, I, maybe we give it a little background first. Um, the talk I've been giving this fall is called You Deserve Nice Things. And it's all about like Apple leaves us with these gaps in the standard library. And I think they kind of expect us to fill them with our own extensions. Uh, now, this approach has a lot of problems, which I go into in the talk, but it's kind of all we're really left with. And so I go through several different extensions that I think are useful. If you're not careful, I think these extensions can get to be quite big. Um, but I think the best way to combat that is keep each extension really focused. And so if you have like, you know, you want to add the all function to sequence, which returns true if every object passes some test. If you want to add that function and you want to add like the none function, which returns true if no objects in the sequence pass that test, maybe those two go together but nothing else necessarily needs to go with them. And find a way to group them and find a way to, that makes sense to where they're broken up into different extensions and different files. And that way you can kind of keep the things that are sensible together and then keep the things that are unrelated separate and, um, and go from there. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the, this problem is the same as putting too many things in the same type, like basically giving something, an object, too many responsibilities. So it's very common because, you know, you might start out with an idea of something and you might add, you know, an extension or a convenience API on, on another type. And you might think, well, that's all I need for now. But then your project evolves and you need more things and more things. And, and then you end up with this big extension. So how do you deal with that? Well, for me, it's usually like splitting things up. And if you have something which uh, has a lot of responsibilities. That's usually a sign that you have a very flat architecture. And the way I usually solve that is kind of adding more layers or at least one more layer where if you, for example, let's say you have a view controller and you have a bunch of extensions on the view controller to do data loading. Well, you could always split that up into a data loader instead. And that way you don't have these, this problem anymore with like massive extensions, but because you basically have moved those responsibilities into dedicated objects. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, the other thing that you can do that's really nice is you can compose extensions together or like compose the functions from those extensions together. Uh, I had a friend who had an issue where they needed to, basically they had one long array and the array had internal structure where every four elements like repeated basically and they needed to know like, are all these slices identical? And so they wrote this function, they kind of laboriously wrote out this function where it would like check each item um, against like the prefix of the first, like let's say you wanted the slices of four. It would take four off the front with like a prefix and then compare every four items to those four items. And it was like, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 lines of code. And it ended up being, um, you know, it ended up being somewhat kind of complicated and kind of hard to read. But if you kind of adopt this extension mentality uh, that I propose in my talk, you can add extensions, one for all, which we talked about earlier, which returns true if all of the elements in some sequence pass a test. And then you can also use one called chunk, which will break things up into chunks of some size. And you can basically compose those, compose those together and say, okay, chunk the thing. And then if every chunk is equal to the last chunk, then you know that this is composed of basically identical slices. Yeah. And the that solution ends up being two lines and is a lot more declarative because you get to say, okay, chunk this, I don't care how you chunk it, and then check if they're equal. Check if all the chunks are equal, and I don't care how you do that either. 
Um, and so you end up, the, the reader of the code ends up being able to say, oh, that's how this thing is structured. I actually want to use, I also actually want to make sure like one other thing is checked, like make sure the last slice is also the length of the whole thing um, so that it's not, you know, there's not some remainder at the end. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, so, so a lot of these things with, if there's a particularly complex extension, there may be multiple things that you can break out of that, turn those into their own extensions and then compose them in your final solution. Yeah. Because I think definitely that, you know, complexity, it's not necessarily like the amount of functions you have, but more like, are they digestible in of their own? Like you might have, you know, 20 extensions on the sequence protocol, but if they are grouped in kind of a logical way, if they are named in a way that makes it easy to understand what they do, and if they their bodies are not like super long and super complex, and like you say, like composing them is actually really in favor of that goal because if you know what the chunk uh, method does or function does then when you see that used in another context and being composed in different different ways uh, you kind of already have a hint as to what the implementation is supposed to do because you knew already what that function does right right, right. yeah so i definitely think that makes just getting into a code base easier because you don't have these like massive control flows like you mentioned where you know you have if statements everywhere and things going all over the place lots of different conditions um, you instead have these like smaller pieces that all do something very very specific and then you can then you know build on top of those uh, to create more complex functionality that's right um there is a there's a term of art called cyclomatic complexity it's basically a way to measure a function and how complex it is so essentially if you have one if statement that is two paths that your code can go through either if or else if you have a switch statement that can be more paths and basically, by multiplying all these paths together, you can find out how many possible paths there are through the control flow graph of this function. And then from that, you can figure out how many there are in your whole program. And this is a way of measuring, basically, how, um, how complex some code is and like how many things you need to understand and how many things you need to test if you're going to like test it and like work through all the different possibilities. And so um, it's, it's a cool, interesting measure. Uh, it doesn't apply in every situation, but if you don't want to just use like number of lines as a measure of complexity, you can use something like cyclomatic complexity. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. All right, uh, that was a really great question. Uh, let's move over now to a question about testing. So this one comes from Pablo Pazziello, and he asks you, Sarush, what you think about testing. Uh, do you still continue to avoid testing? Uh, because he realized that you didn't do tests in a talk you gave a while ago. So what's up with that? I remember this. Um, I made some joke on stage that I don't test because I'm a bad person. I forgot what conference it was at. Uh, and it's mostly true. Um, the thing with testing is that I think that your code has to be structured in a way to take advantage of testing. And that structure is basically the data in, data out. Um, so if, if it's very simple, where you can set it up to where it takes some data, you know, it can't take the UI view, it can't take like anything complicated. It has to take some data, and then it has to process that data and then spit data out. Essentially, like the stuff that does the logic in your application. That's stuff that's perfect for testing. And when I can, I structure code like that 
so that I can test it, especially if I know it's going to be complicated and I know that the testing is going to pay off. So an example of this is, let's say, you know, you have some enum that represents different actions that can come out of a view controller and those actions go into a coordinator and that coordinator needs to make some decision based on those actions and do something based on that. Right. If you can extract that into a function, a struct or something where you can kind of map between the, the enums that come in and the data that comes out, uh, maybe that data that comes out is like maybe it's a view controller factory um, and you can test to make sure that the correct view controller comes out, then you're in a, like you're in a really good place with testing. So when stuff like that happens, I do test. But if it's like, I'm not going to construct the whole world just so I can test one function in a view controller to test that the state changed correctly. Uh, I'd like move that state out and then, and then test it there. Yeah. I mean, to me, that doesn't sound like you're avoiding testing. It sounds a bit more that you're being pragmatic about it. Uh, which I think is good. Uh, I try to do the same thing. Like I love testing as a tool, but I'm not one of those uh, TDD evangelists who uh, just live and breathe testing and do testing for everything. Uh, I do testing where it makes sense. And I try to use testing where, like you say, where there's like a clear data in, data out, where uh, there's something I want to verify and also something that might be really critical and I am not... 100% sure if I've covered all the cases. So by using testing in those cases, I can be more confident about my code that I'm committing. And also I can be more confident that it's not gonna break in the future. Yeah. But if I'm doing something like you know, a user interaction, for me, that doesn't make a lot of sense to test because the mocking and the uh, you know, big hoops you would have to jump through in order to actually enable you to test that in, in unit testing specifically, uh, would be really, really tricky. Well, and the hardcore TDD people, they they work on the web where everything is data in, data out. You give it a string, which represents some request, and you get out a string, which represents some response. And like that, yeah, it is actually very, very easy to test that. Um, you may have to mock your database and mock some, some resources, but like you can basically test that. That's just data. Whereas what we deal with, like that's why we have such consternation about UI tests. How do we make this work? How does this... How does this happen? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I definitely think there's uh, there's something to be said for, you know, structuring at least parts of, of the app that deals with logic, that deals with models, and all those kind of things that are really core, and you don't want them to break. I mean, you don't want anything to break, but yeah, especially like something that deals with a lot of edge cases, and you get like three of the edge cases right, and you try to get the fourth one right, and you break the first one. That's like, you know you need testing at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wrote like some URL parser or something and stuff just kept breaking. And I was like, you know what? Like, why am I doing this? Just write test cases, test them. And then every time you solve a new test case, make sure the previous ones didn't break. Very simple. Yeah. And another uh, great use case of unit testing is if you're writing some kind of library or framework that you're going to use in multiple apps. So instead of having to manually, you know, do integration into all of these different apps, you just, you know, write a test against the framework. That way you can also verify that the API makes sense. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, I think being pragmatic about testing is the key. Uh you know, try to not be too like quote unquote religious about it, where it's like I never do testing or I always do testing. Uh, it's a tool, like anything, it's a tool. Apply it where it makes sense. Yeah, totally. All right, so uh, we now have uh, the final question, which comes from friend of the show G Rambo, and he asks us about what do you think about the explosion of iOS architectures? It seems like everyone has their own, and 
do we have a favorite? So we just talked about MVVM, MVC earlier in this episode. So let's wrap it up with some thoughts about architectural patterns in general. What do you think, Sarush? Uh, boy, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> it's an episode of it of its own. Yeah, no, it's it's a really good question. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Awesome question. So what what G is talking about here is basically like we have MVC, which is sort of what Apple recommends. We have MVVM, which is what other people recommend. We got Viper. We got, and everybody has their own little you know uh, acronym that they use for their particular brand of 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 UI architecture. This this got to the to a really crazy point where I I had I saw one that was like it, it was it was like eight letters long it was like <laughs> MVCQLD or something like that the Q was query the L was layout and like they just had this crazy crazy acronym and I kind of realized that, that those object types are very useful and very important but they're not necessarily very important to every single. Um, to every single sort of screen in your app, if you will. So if you take, for example, a signup view controller, which everybody has in their app, it's probably two to five text fields, a submit button, some validation, stuff like that. What's the model object there? Because it's not a user because you really can't have a user unless you know you probably have a, a non-optional email address, you have a non-optional uh, you know, display name, whatever. So it's not a user object that's the model there. Um, so what is the model? And you could kind of force it and say, well, this is my signup model and it represents the validation and the temporary variables or whatever. But nobody actually does that in practice. I've, I've looked in a lot of code bases since I've become a contractor and nobody, I've never seen anybody do that. And so the answer is that there are some screens in your app that don't even have a model. They just don't. Um, they'll hit the network and if you really squint, you could call that a model. Um, but it's, it's not really. And so Different screens need different things. And if you have Viper, you know, not every screen is going to need uh, an interactor. Some screens, like your about screen, maybe just needs a presenter, right? It's, uh, it's not going to have an entity, for example, um, which is the E in Viper. Uh, so, you know, you have, you have all these situations where not every letter is necessary for every screen. <laughs> and yeah. so to me, I think it becomes useful to just throw them all out and say, I'm looking at a screen. I'm obviously going to need a view controller and a view because that's necessary. Uh, what else do I need? Do I need a custom layout that I can inject so I can hot swap the layout for different modes? Do I need an entity where I can like bring this in and bring this out based on core data or based on whatever? Do I need a network, some kind of network architecture here? Do I need, what do I need? And bring the pieces together for that specific view instead of trying to say, well, this is my broad pattern. Every view has a layout even if it like represents an image for example. Yeah, because that's when you end up with these like classes that are just like token classes. They're just there to to be part of the pattern. And I totally agree with you. I usually say, which might be a little bit controversial, but I usually say that the letter combination that you choose for your app is the least interesting choice you're going to make. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much right. <laughs> uh, because I tend to think the exact same way, where I look at what I want to build and I try to architect some kind of microsystem for that thing that solves the problem I'm, I'm going to solve. Now, one thing, you know, just so you don't get me wrong, is that I'm not saying that you shouldn't use an architecture. I'm not saying you shouldn't agree, like if you have a big team, uh, you know, agree on certain standards in the way you do things. I mean, that's super important. But I think the system that you build and the architecture that you come up with 
it doesn't necessarily have to be just a letter combination. Like it can be stuff like, like you mentioned, like how do we deal with the, with, with validators or entities and how do we deal with the model layer? And that is so specific to every app. Like every app has different models and different needs. You know, if you're building something like a, you know, music service, you have very, very different needs than if you're building a to-do app or if you're building, I don't know, a maps application. And I think the architecture needs to be tailored to what you want to build. Yeah, that makes total sense. So what I usually do uh, in order, because it's easy to say this, you know, on a podcast and then, you know, just just make something that fits what you want to build. <laughs> Easier said than done. Um, so the way I usually think about these things is I have what I call the whiteboard test. And the whiteboard test is if someone were to join my team tomorrow and they would come in, could I explain the entire architecture of the app using a whiteboard in less than five minutes? And if I can, that usually means I have a good architecture. And it doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with letter combinations. It just has to do with what abstractions have I chosen and how have I chosen to structure the app rather than you know just fitting something into one pattern. Because even if you do, let's take Viper for an example. Even if you have Viper in your app, does it really mean that you can explain your architecture to someone in five minutes? Uh, it, may, it may, but it may not. It doesn't really have that much to do with it. Right, yeah. I think that's basically right. The other thing I would I would warn uh, with Viper is like you'll end up with classes that are tiny or empty. Yeah. Like your presenter and interactor just do nothing. And it's like, well, is this really necessary here? Yeah. I mean, then again, like if, if, if you're working in a team where you've had a lot of problems in the past with these more like loose custom architectures, then going and saying, okay, let's just use Viper. Let's all agree. Let's just do it this way. It might be really valuable, right? right it might right. be really valuable to standardize things. So it's, it's not one way or the other, but I guess just what I'm trying to say is that don't put too much weight on the actual letter combination. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So yeah, that was a great question and definitely something we're probably going to discuss uh, a lot more on future episodes. So those are all the questions that we have time for this episode. Uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a preview of what's coming up next. So on the next episode, my guest is, guest is going to be Mike Ash. And Mike Ash, he does a awesome uh, series of blog posts that he calls the Friday Q&A, where he goes really in depth about certain aspects of Swift. It can be anything from like locking mechanisms and multi-threading to what's new in Swift 4, etc. He also uh, has written several books, so it's going to be really interesting to have him on the show next episode. If you have anything that you'd like me and Mike to discuss, make sure to send it in by going to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast or by just tweeting a topic or question to at swiftbysundell on Twitter. All right, so we've now reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Sarush, for joining me on this episode. Yeah, I was happy to be here. This was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Great discussions and uh, great questions. For sure. So if people want to reach you and follow your work, where should they go on the World Wide Web? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at my last name, so at K-H-A-N-L-O-U. Uh, but I don't really post much there. I really just post um, when there's a new podcast and a new blog. That's pretty much all I do. So I, the thing that I would like people to know me for is my blog, conlu.com, which I'm sure will be in the show notes. For sure. And... Uh, uh, my friend Chris Zombach and I also do a podcast called Fatal Error, and uh, we have a lot of fun with that. 
Um, and we just recorded episode 50, which is coming out in a week or two. Wow. Now that's a real milestone. Yeah, that's a big milestone. It's a, it's a fun one. Um, yeah. So that marks the end of season three. Uh, and we will be back in the new year, maybe with a new format, actually. So we're going to try some oh, wow. new stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, definitely make sure to, if you like this show, make sure to check out Fatal Error as well. Yeah, it's it's Chris and I. And again, like the blog, like we try to talk about things that other people don't talk about. Um, we did uh, one episode that I thought was really cool where we interviewed um, two people who were trying to get jobs in our industry. And we kind of talked about some of the challenges that they had. Uh, getting into the industry and the audio quality isn't really representative of what we do on a normal day-to-day basis because it was like an in-person interview around a table but um, that was a really eye-opening episode for me I thought that one was really cool so awesome yeah we'll put a link to that episode as well in the in the show notes for sure great stuff uh, you can find me also on Twitter at John Sundell and you can find everything about this podcast and about the weekly Swift blog at swiftbysundell.com Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.